Please join me in prayer. Lord God, we praise your name that as Athanasius said, and as we just affirmed moments ago with those words, there was not when the Logos was not. And that is our hope. And we bow before you in all the humility that your grace will allow us to exhibit. And we come, as the hymnist has said, weak and wounded, sick and sore as sinners, standing in need of you to do even still a great work in us, applying to us the, the work of Jesus and equipping us for any good work to which you would call us. We ask that as you open, as we open your word, that you would speak to us through it by your spirit, and that you would prepare us to come to your table and to sup with you, expectant of the glorious reality that there you will give to us your grace. You will remind us of your love and whose we are and who you are making us to be. All these things we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. A friend of mine once said, and, and I find myself in agreement with this, that if he were stranded on an island, as we say in the vernacular, and could have one passage of Scripture with him, he would want Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And the reason he said that, and the reason I agree, is that the whole of both man's condition and what God has done, the great lengths to which he has gone to reverse that condition, and the purpose for which he does so, are here. It's all in here. Everything man needs to know in order how to be right with God is, is self-contained in this great passage we know to be the first ten verses of Ephesians chapter 2. Man is dead in transgressions and sins. He is made alive by God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is not of ourselves. It is by His grace. And the very reason that He has done that is because we are His workmanship, or literally His craftsmanship. We are the makings of His hand, and He has created us to do good works that He prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And in an estate of spiritual deadness, that can't be done. But that's the reason for His glory God has worked in and through the Lord Jesus Christ to take dead men and make them alive. So you have the problem, you have the power of salvation that delivers from the problem, you have the good pleasure underneath and serving as the foundation and the very impetus for the exhibition of the power. And then you have the purpose that God would see His redeemed creatures do those things that He had determined that they would do before He even spoke them into existence by the word of His power. So you could preach a four-point sermon on all ten verses with four points beginning with the letter P. I'm not going to do that today. I find myself zeroing in on a couple of verses that I deem particularly appropriate for the occasion of coming to the Lord's Supper. As I travel around, I'm noticing that 
and, and I'm thankful for this, there's a greater emphasis being placed upon the Lord's Supper. Some are, are celebrating it monthly, as is the custom here. Some are bi-weekly celebrating the, the Supper. Now, some have even moved within the Reformed tradition, as you know, to a, a weekly celebration of the sacrament. And, of course, uh, the worship service is not the time to debate the reasons for that. But nonetheless, within the providence of God, we see a refocusing upon this great ordinance for exactly what it is, a means of grace. And I always strive when I am preaching on a particular occasion to find a text that can readily be linked to the sacrament. But even when I was pastoring the church, a Redeemer church down in Torrance and was working through books, it it struck me that there was the objective necessary every time to be faithful to the text to look at it and examine it in the light of the sacraments as those great sermons without words as they have been referred to as, but particularly the Lord's Supper. And in the midst of this, we find as Paul is developing the depravity of man and he rounds the corner in verse 4 and says, but God who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And then he states that this is by grace, something that he will repeat verbatim in verse 8. But he says this in verses 6 and 7, and raised us up, that is He, God, raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And I want us very simply today as we come to the table to focus on the kindness of God. You know, that's not something we really do that often. We talk a lot about His grace and His mercy and His love, and they're no doubt all connected. And we may well speak of God generally in terms of kindness that is in everyday language as we would use the word. But the question arises, what is biblical kindness as a description of our God? And what does that uniquely mean for us, particularly as we prepare to sup with him at the table? Well, there is a noun in the Greek that is found only in the writings of Paul. Kindness, Christotis. And it simply means goodness of heart. And when we talk about the kindness of God, very simply, we are stressing those actions that He takes, those works that He does, to apply to His own, to those whom He is pleased to show mercy to, the very essence of how good He is in His core. We talk about Him being good. Well, He's pure and altogether good. In Him, there is no bad thing. He is the totality of goodness. And when we speak of His kindness, particularly in a personal sense, we bear witness to the fact that out of that wellspring of goodness that characterizes who He is, we are experiencing the benefits of His covenant promises to our own spiritual nourishment and growth in grace for His glory, that He may be seen before the creation as the one 
who is kind. That is, he shows, he demonstrates, and he acts graciously and favorably toward those who who don't deserve it. So it's a specific kindness. Now, the adjectival form of Christotis or Christos is found outside of Paul in the New Testament, and it refers to the goodness of a person that features graciousness. You say, well, now, wait a minute, man's not good. Paul makes that clear in in Romans chapter 3. No, inherently he isn't. But think about this. If God is acting kindly toward man and is applying the results of his work that stem from his goodness, it only follows that over time in the process of our being conformed to the image of his Son, that a certain goodness of heart as the righteousness of Jesus is imputed to us would characterize us. You hear people say, he has such a good heart. And again, in the Reformed tradition, oh, we're all over them. Oh, no, he doesn't. But what they're really saying is that there is something well-intentioned coming from outside of him that is changing him and transforming him and causing those with whom he has to do to see the very goodness of God. After all, the book of Acts, we see the identification of Philip as a man who is a good man filled with the Spirit. So we have the goodness of God and who he is extending to man via the works of his kindness and producing good results in us We just read, again, the purpose is that we could do before, we could do now, after salvation, what we were incapable of of doing before we were changed. That is the goodness of God being shown and being displayed for the world. There are a couple of other translations for Christotis in the New Testament, as I indicated, and uh, sometimes it comes from... uh, or it's translated good, as we've just laid it out, that would obviously be a good translation. But there uh, is one place in particular where it is, and I believe there are a couple of others, easy. And it was interesting the other day as I went back and I examined in Matthew 11 that famous passage where Jesus says that his yoke is easy and his burden is light, it could very suitably be translated, my yoke is kindly and my burden is light. That is, he's, he's contrasting the burden of sin and how it is that his burden is not condemnatory, but it is liberating, so it is therefore a lighter and preferred yoke. But we all know, he has told us himself, that for his name's sake we will be persecuted. There will be trials and tribulations and sorrows and griefs in this life. And what he is telling us, I believe, in the statement that his yoke is kindly, is that even as we do endure those comparatively lighter and momentary afflictions, his aim is to deal with us graciously, and therefore the works that he takes us through, the experiences that we have in his promise, in His providence that hurt us, His desired result is one of gracious operation that will change and sanctify us. And that ultimately, you see, is His kindness. 
that we're no longer under the burden of condemnation, but that we are free and we live in the freedom of that. Now, the closest word that we would have in the Hebrew and find in the Old Testament to this would be one that we've noted on several occasions is hesed love, uh, that God is passionate toward, that he is zealous toward showing favor toward those whom he pities. We don't like to use the word pity, but again, our hope lies in the fact that our Creator, from whom we have estranged ourselves in our sin, pities us. He, he sees us as in dire need of compassion. He, if you will, feels sorry for us out of the goodness of the depths of His being. And He works to the end of reversing the sin problem and making us suitable and those able to be acquitted before Him, before His bar of justice. And I think of that term as it is used, for example, by Naomi in the opening chapter of Ruth. Ruth is sending her daughters-in-law back to their mothers. And she says, go return each other to her mother's house, and the Lord may He deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead, that is, their husbands, and with me. And the Lord may He grant you rest each in the house of her husband. See here, there's a connection of kindliness, the kindliness of God, and rest. And that's exactly what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11. If you go back a verse, He says that He is meek and lowly of heart, and it is in Him that we will find rest for our souls. Why? Because His yoke is kindly. So all throughout the Scriptures, we see this connection between kindliness of God, the exhibition of His gracious works, and rest and favor, and the benefit of being made to do what we could not do before. And as we come to the table, that is something indeed worth celebrating because it's right here in the elements before us. We have the great privilege of commemorating the kindness of God you think about what a commemoration is. It's more than a mere remembrance, but it's a reflection and a time to camp out upon what something really means and what's in it for you. Where's the blessing? This past Wednesday, we commemorated the birth of this nation in which we live, our 242nd birthday. And you, you see people with memorabilia, with small flags or buttons or, or T-shirts. What we have before us is divinely inspired tangible memorabilia. I don't mean that irreverently, but I mean that to isolate the purpose that God gives us elements that we can hold in our hands and consume, take them into our bodies, have them appeal to our senses in that most intimate of ways in which the body of Christ can commune, in, in sharing a meal, and in so doing, we not only remember what He did, but what it means and all of the freedoms that He has arranged the circumstances of our lives to cause us to know that we have and we possess. So that's really all we're, we're talking about today. You know, I normally have uh, outlines uh, for sermons, but this is really a, basically a one-point sermon, the, the kindness of God. And Paul, in his employment of this noun, Christotis, Essentially, wherever you find it, is teaching two things. 
the fact that God is kind and acts toward His own in kindness. But He also, in some occasions, in some places, calls for those recipients of that kindness that is extended to us to mark those of us who have received it. And with that, we see that kindness is a communicable attribute. That is an attribute that God possesses, that we can possess as He works in us, though to a a far lesser degree by virtue of our finiteness. But nonetheless, it can characterize us as it characterizes Him. So Paul is demonstrating either, in each instance that he uses this term, the kindness of God demonstrated toward men, or the kindness that ought to characterize men as they respond in obedience and thankfulness to Him in kind. So what I want to do today is to look at two things in the Pauline scheme of this definition of kindness. First of all, our responsibility as we live to reflect the kindness of God. And secondly, in so doing, to recognize ultimately that kindness itself is the main impetus for and force behind repentance. And we have to get that. That is key. Because we call down upon ourselves and God releases to us the efficacy of Christ's atoning work when we repent with regard to every last sin that we commit. That's a remarkable thing to think about. And those are the the two things that I want for us to look at, and I believe that those are both upheld and affirmed by Ephesians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Well, first of all, the three passages that I want us to see with regard to this responsibility to respond to God in kindness. In Titus chapter 3, verse 4, Paul mentions... The, the kindness of God. We made reference to this a few weeks back as we were looking at the five trustworthy sayings of, of Paul, Timothy and Titus. And Titus uh, chapter 3, verse 8 is the fifth and final of those. But Paul begins what we know to be the third chapter of Titus uh, by reminding those to whom he ministers and specifically speaking to the elders that they're to be ready for their good work. And he contrasts who those to whom he ministers were as those who were disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy and hateful and hating one another. Uh, that's, those are, are quite stark and vivid images that we have even elsewhere in the New Testament. But, he says in verse 4, when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward merit appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly. All of those things we just read, they flow out of the kindness of God. And he's calling for those leaders, those chosen, to represent Christ in the midst of his people, namely on the island of Crete. You affirm these kindnesses. You demonstrate these. You you show these. And in in Colossians, a book that you've just finished studying, 
under Mike's leadership in Sunday school. In the third chapter, in verse 12, uh, Paul identifies the elect as those who ought to put on kindness. I love it when Paul uses those words, put on. That's remarkable language to really impress the idea. Wear it. Adorn it. Go around with this on. I mean, what's the first thing that we usually notice about people? What they're wearing. Have the kindness of God extended to you in your very appearing, made obvious. Work to that end. Then, of course, in Romans chapter 11, and in the 22nd verse, we read that the kindness of God is shown toward those who continue in it. These are all usages of the Christotes. The goodness that is deep within God and is at His core is something that we are called, as those who have received it, to continue in, to to walk in it, using the language of Ephesians 2.10. Proceed through life. Keep moving. Keep pressing forward. Marked by kindness as it has been shown to us by God in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. I was thinking about that this past week. A man came to mind who was a very dear friend of mine who went to be with the Lord several years ago. He was actually on the search committee. He chaired the search committee, the pulpit search committee that called me right out of seminary 22 and a half years ago to the New Life Presbyterian Church in Manhattan Beach. He had retired from a corporation for which he worked for many years And I'd never seen a man, he never married, he never had a family who was given to such kind deeds. He had been fairly dramatically converted at the age of 44. And he had given himself to service, to shut-ins, to widows, to orphans, uh, to those who were in need. He, He always had an eye and paid great attention for those who needed to be shown something something of kindness. He had retired from the place that he worked three years earlier than he intended to, and the reason was they were giving early buyouts. They told him that if he would retire at 62, he could live out the rest of his life with health care at no cost to him. But if he waited until he was 65 or older, he would have to foot the bill of his own care. And I thought about that as I was thinking about George's life and his kindness and his service as a deacon par excellence. That's sort of the picture that comes to mind when the gospel is set before men. When the gospel is proclaimed, man has one of two options. He can come out of, by grace through faith, the estate of sin and misery and into an estate of salvation, and his soul care is eternal at no cost to him. Or he can choose to remain in darkness... He can choose to live the dreadful life that we read about a moment ago in Titus chapter 3. But when the time came, and when it all ended, he would pay the cost. You see, as those who have been delivered from the cost, and in the presence of the Lord Jesus this day at his table, the one who has borne it all, he has freed us then we have an obligation before Him 
to be kind as He has been kind. Look at verse 7 of Ephesians chapter 2. The purpose of God. That in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That is, in the ages to come, in your life and in mine, in generation after generation, in the Ecclesiastes 1-3 sense of what that means, even into eternity, in all periods of time and in glorification, God's purpose is to show the exceeding riches, those gems, and all of their unsurpassable facets. Any way you look at the grace of God, it comes out more valuable than any other thing. The extension of that richness of grace, the extreme value of it in His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Toward us. It's it's aimed at His own. It's constantly flowing in the direction of those who are His, who trust in Him. And if in the ages to come He's going to show this, then we must walk in kindness. Again, He wants to show it. He wants to display it. That can't happen in a vacuum. That has to happen in the lives of those who are recipients of His favor through His kind deeds. If I were to paraphrase the description of what Samuel did in 1 Samuel 7, verse 12, You know the story there where he raised his Ebenezer. He put a stone up between Mitzpah and Shin. And the declaration was, thus far or to this point, the Lord has helped us. And there is a sense in which every time we partake of the bread and drink of the cup, that we place our own stone and we say, thus far we have been recipients of the Lord's great kindness. And what's interesting about that is that when you study 1 Samuel 7, the chapter at large, and the surrounding story, you begin to see that the distinction that the raised stone makes is one that shows that there are different results when the favor of God is presumed upon than there are when it is humbly availed of through the vehicle of repentance. And that leads to the second aspect of this, the idea of repentance. We don't hear enough about repentance today either, I believe. But when you stop and think about it, when you and I are repenting of our sins, examining our hearts, and calling for the Lord to have mercy upon us in Christ Jesus, and to place the sins that we're confessing under His blood, that's the only time in which you're really growing in grace and being sanctified, if you're not repenting and if you're back trying to justify your actions or continue in things that you want to do that you know are wrong, there's no availing of the benefit of Christ's work. It is only when we are before Him, crying out to Him, and saying those very things that we read out of the prophet Isaiah at the beginning of the service. Woe unto me! I am undone. The real understanding of our predicament and the desperate need to be delivered from it and to be set right again before God. Well, Paul employs the term 
Christotis in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, there with his longing that his brothers and sisters at Rome not despise the kindness of God, knowing that the kindness of God leads to repentance. The very thing we're talking about, God's kindness is the reason you and I ever repent in the first place. Now, I think as Paul is writing these words under house arrest in the early 60s A.D., that he no doubt has that in mind. After all, in the opening chapter, he's prayed for them. Beginning at verse 15, he's reported that he's rejoiced over their faith that they possess of the Lord Jesus Christ and their love for one another. And he says, I do not cease giving thanks to you. And then he goes on to mention many, many things that he hopes are true of them spiritually as God works in them. But again, that doesn't happen, does it not, without repentance. In Revelation chapter 2, the angel of the church of Ephesus writes and conveys Jesus' pleasure in that church. We know this is a church that he loved very much. He knew of their works, their labors, their patience, their forbearance with those who were evil. And he gives them recognition for this. But then he says in verse 4 of Revelation 2, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from whence you have fallen, repent and do the first works. So a new believer is latched on to the kindness of God. Somewhere along the way, Things block out the kindness of God in our sin and in our experience, the iniquities of others that we bear the brunt of, and we lose sight of those things that we were initially called to do and were redeemed to proceed in. And what does Jesus desire and what is he calling for through his servant Paul, I believe, in the Ephesian letter? Repent. Repentance. For only then do we reap the benefit of what Christ has worked to accomplish in our given situations. That's hard. It's it's difficult to think of the kindness of God when our sins are outed. You know, when we're outed for sin, we're not really sorry at first, are we? We're sorry we were caught And then God, in His mercy, has to work a godly sorrow in us. And it's tough. But only then does the process of God's divine blessings raining down upon His people as He intends, because there's nothing blocking it, there's nothing in the way. Only when that happens can there be the experience of true kindness. I I, I was thinking recently about this in the matter of the Gibeonites and Saul, as recorded in Second Samuel 21, uh, there had been a famine in sinful Israel for three years. Famines are hard enough without lasting three years, and David doesn't quite understand all of this, and so he inquires of God, and he finds out that it was because of the bloodthirstiness of Saul and his slaughtering of the Gibeonites that this had come about. And an oath had been sworn not to destroy the Gibeonites. And the brutal consequences are in the offing for Israel here as one reads on through uh, chapter 21 of Second Samuel. 
And you think, well, my, isn't God cruel? But you see, a covenant had been made or literally cut. And God's character requires that every jot and tittle of a covenant be kept. And so long story short, what happens here is that this costs the lives of seven men. Saul had two sons by Ritzpah, and he had five grandsons, the, daughters of his, the sons of his daughter Michael, who were put to death. Mephibosheth was spared because of the Lord's oath that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. But the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan were brought up from Jabesh-Gilead, and they were placed with those who had been hanged in Benjamin. And this seems, as I said, awfully cruel, but verse 14 of 2 Samuel 21 says this, So they performed all that the king commanded, that is, all that justice required, and after that God heeded the prayer for the land. The problem had to be taken care of. And so God had to out the sin, the violation of the covenant. And seven men pay the price. And then with clear consciences and with no obstacles to the reception of the favor of God, God then again hears them. He can heed the cry on behalf of by the king on behalf of his own people. He can hear what is coming from deep within the recesses of their hearts. And once again, he can hear them. He can set that right. And the beautiful thing is, beloved, that as we come today and as our sins are routed, no one has to die because the Son of God already has. I mean, repentance was tough business back in the day, wasn't it? But look today that we come and we bear our, heart, our hearts and we cry out to God and we say, this is sinful, this is wretched, take this from me. I'm faithful to confess it by your grace. You be faithful. Claim that promise that we professed a little while ago, that He is righteous and He will cleanse us from all un righteousness see the kindest thing that God can do is reveal our sin to show us that darkness to get it all out and to force us into a place of repentance where we cry out to him and call down in faith upon ourselves the benefits of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and you know the Lord's Supper is an, a wonderfully appropriate time to do just that. It is not only appropriate, but it is necessary. When you think of down through the ages, from that last supper on, how it is that the saints have examined their own hearts, how they have discerned the body of Christ, how they have examined their relationships one with another. And God has been pleased to reveal sin to them. This is our place to make inquiry as it were of our own hearts and to confess those sins as we come to him D.L. Moody Dwight Lyman Moody once told of two brothers much like Cain and Abel who had set out for the west to seek their fortune 
One had money and the other did not. And when they got on the frontier, the one without the money murdered the one with the money and continued on his way. The body of the murdered brother was found and the doctors took the head of the murdered brother and preserved it in alcohol. No proof of the murder could be found. No one was present when the deed was done. The brother was accused but asserted his innocence. No eye was there but his and God's. And he was at one point brought before a judge and jury declaring his innocence. Then they walk into the courtroom with the dead face of his brother. And as he gazed upon it, Moody said, he fell weak and dropped to the floor in confession. When our unconfessed sins in the providence of God come before us like that and bring us to our knees in confession, that is the kindness of God operating. And Moody said, when a man comes and throws himself on his knees in the room of inquiry, there is hope for him. Have you ever experienced that? You're trying to get away. You're trying to get away. And there it comes, that thing that is before you. Whatever it is that God brings to the room of inquiry, and you gaze upon it, and you can't escape. It's like the burning coal that touches the lips. God is very kind to do this and to reassure you of of the favor that He is intent upon showing you in all of His acts of goodness that come from His heart. You see, that is what Jesus' purpose is as we move from age to age. Again, looking at our text, if you look at verse 6 of Ephesians 2, Paul says that God raised us up together and made us sit together. This is not solely nor even primarily talking about the resurrection. Paul is using a word here unique for the ascension. That's actually what he's emphasizing. That in vital union with Jesus, with Christ, verse 5, notice at the end of both verses 6 and 7, we again have the language we examined four weeks ago in the introductory greeting of this great letter, in Christ. Paul's constantly using those terms to remind his readers there and his readers here today of the union that we have, the immovable connection that we are fastened to Christ, that we are, as I said, that sown into Him, grafted into Him, and because of that, whatever is true of Him becomes true of us. And He is working that purpose in us between the time of justification and the reality of the coming glorification. He raised us up together. That is, He he causes us as one with Christ to ascend. And He makes us sit together, even as Jesus is seated on the right hand of the Father, as His who have vital union with Him, even though we are not there physically, we sit there with Him by virtue of our citizenship that is there. And we await His return from there to take us to that place eternally. And so you see preeminent and of most importance as we are raised with Him and seated with Him is that His righteousness 
and what his lawful living and sacrificial, sacrificial dying have accomplished for sinners. Most important is the application of that, even now, in our sin. I call upon the Savior. I repent. I turn from sin, from that place. He gives to us and grants to us His righteousness and His favor so that on that day, we will appear before God as if we had never sinned at all. And I think the kindness of God must have been something that Luther had on his mind and in his heart when he declared, I must live this day for the day. The 19th century Church of England bishop John McCairness said in the context of the Lord's Supper, Especially in the acts of sacramental communion with his Lord does the Christian gather up and consecrate the powers of his lifelong communion with heaven. Then it is that he has the most vivid impression of the nearness of God to his soul, a most comfortable assurance of strength for his need. That lifelong communion with heaven. That's what Paul is referring to when he's talking about being raised up together with Christ and made to sit together with Him. And it is especially in the sacramental act of communion that we as those who believe in Him gather that up and consecrate the powers of lifelong communion with heaven. Thomas Guthrie, the 19th century Scottish preacher and philanthropist, said he regarded it the highest kindness of God to man that He selects man to serve as an instrument in the saving of His fellow men. And, and I believe as we assess the kindness of God, as we think about moving through life, living it out, we must be able to affirm that. The Redeemer's cause, Dr. Guthrie continued, was seen in each new jewel that adds luster to the crown of the believer. Those are the exceeding riches of His grace in Ephesians 2.7. They work to proclaim the gospel to sinners, see them changed with full knowledge that the greatest rejoicing over such change is in heaven, not upon earth where man is saved. We can and we will be used and therefore must place ourselves by faith at the disposal of our God to be used in the work of Him, quickening sinners and causing them to see that there is a merciful, loving, gracious God who saves sinners and is forever, yea, unto all eternity, kind to them. Well, remember what Jesus said after the Beatitudes and speaking to those in His hearing in Luke chapter 6, He used the adjectival form. 
of Christotis. Christos. The Savior Himself said of His Father, He is kind to the unthankful and the evil. Therefore, be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Refraining from giving to those who have violated the very honor of one that which is deserved, that showcases ultimately the kindness of our God. And my prayer is that we will declare with Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 4 and 6, but in all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God by kindness. And my prayer that is as we sup with Him, that He will give us the grace to do so. To place ourselves by faith at the disposal of our God to be used in His quickening work of sinners and causing them to see His mercy as He saves them and brings them to that place where unto all eternity He will be kind to them. May we pray. Lord, as we prepare to eat Your bread and drink Your cup, we realize that Indeed, You are kind and were so to us when we were unthankful and evil. We are no longer unthankful and evil. We are profoundly thankful. And by the righteousness of Jesus, we are becoming Christos. We are becoming good. We are becoming kindly. Only for that kindliness shown to us by You in Christ. So would You forgive us? Would You take those sins that embarrass us of which we are utterly ashamed and would You expose them and would You pour into our wounds deeply the balm of Your eternal kindness in Christ? And send us on our way, walking in that kindness. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.